I believe in hope. I believe in belief. Welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant, and together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series, Ted Lasso. So if you love Ted Lasso as much as Rebecca loves Ted's biscuits, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go. Greyhounds, welcome back. I hope you all had fun with It's a Wonderful Life. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. And I'm Andrea. I'm Bex. And I'm Marita. And they're all Coach Beard's assistants too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how did everybody get on with It's a Wonderful Life? I loved it. It's one of my favorite movies. I watch it every December and it was really kind of fun to watch it in the summer and realize like, and it wasn't as much of a Christmas movie as I've always made it out to be. Yeah, sure. The end takes place at Christmas. I will still call it a Christmas movie, just as I will still call Die Hard a Christmas movie. Die Hard as a Christmas movie. Well, that's what I'm saying. So, mm-hmm. you know, it still counts to me, but it was also OK to watch it outside yeah. of December. Yeah, I did wonder when it was going to get Christmassy because I've never seen it before. Just for context, that's my very first time seeing it. But you've, you've all seen it before, Marie. Are you seen it before? Yeah, Andrea. It was amazing how like I cr- like just it was almost involuntary crying. Like oh, I, yeah. you know, <laughs> every time oh, we're at this scene, we, snot we, and everything from <laughs> like the scene where the um the pharmacist like boxes in his ear, you know oh, him yeah. like like just all of it like the whole time I'm just like. Yeah, yeah. I thought the lake thing was going to go a very different way, but we'll talk about we'll get into all of that. Bex, you have a summary for anybody who didn't manage to catch the movie but loves us so much they want to listen to the podcast. <laughs> yes, it's it's a summary, but also a little bit of background. So, it's a wonderful life. It's a 1946 American Christmas film produced and directed by Frank Capra. I love that my autocorrect turned this into Cabra, Spanish word for goat, but that's fine. <laughs> It's based on the short story, The Greatest Gift, which was self-published by Philip Van Doren Stern in 1943. And his story was very, very loosely based on the novella A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, which also happens to be my number one favorite Christmas story. It stars James Stewart as George Bailey, Donna Reed as Mary Bailey, and Henry Travers as Clarence the Guardian Angel. I'm focusing on those three, but I guess I should also mention that it's Lionel Barrymore as uh, Mr. Potter. He's probably the biggest, one of the biggest names in here. Any relation to Drew? A grandfather. Yes. Right, that makes sense. Right, okay. I think it's her grandfather, right? And who Great. does he play? Sorry. Yeah. Mr. Potter. Potter. The Wow. Yeah. Interesting. I should point out, I just looked up because you made me think of it. So, so Capra is Italian for goat, which makes sense. Capra okay. <laughs> so my autocorrect just wanted it to be Spanish instead of Italian. <laughs> So basically, in the movie, George Bailey is a man who's given up on his personal dreams in order to help his family and his community. But he has so many problems that he's really thinking about ending it all. And on Christmas, as the angels discuss George, we see his life in flashback. As George is about to jump from the bridge, he ends up rescuing his guardian angel, Clarence, 
who then shows George what his town would have looked like if it hadn't been for all his good deeds over the years. And uh, just to connect it to Ted Lasso, for everyone who might not be sure why we picked this one, we see Ted watching It's a Wonderful Life in season two, episode four, Carol of the Bells. After his FaceTime Christmas with Henry ends early due to Henry's excitement over what Ted calls an overpriced guilt gift, he turns to a bottle of whiskey and this Christmas classic. His viewing of the film is interrupted by Rebecca's arrival, which is meant to distract him from being alone on Christmas. And he is at the point of the film where George is contemplating jumping off the bridge, but instead dives in to save Clarence. Later in the episode, Ted thanks Rebecca for inviting him to join her and comments that it was better than watching It's a Wonderful Life on repeat, which, as he says, could have gone very dark. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing what everybody's got to say about it. And we're starting with Andrea. Yes. I kind of wrote like, even though I already talked about kind of how it, you know, never seems to like, it never ceases to amaze me how much like I just cry at the same moments throughout the whole movie. It's, I mean, it's a good story, right? It's a great story and it does get dark, but it, it does. Yeah. I mean, it has some really good themes, a good story. I thought, I think it's told well, it doesn't really feel like you're sitting through an over two hour long movie, which is nice. I love watching an old movies when they do those super long intros where they're like, they play the music, the interlude, it's like the interlude music and they're pl- putting everybody's yeah. name really big. Like, I don't know why that just it's always something about. Me the overture and putting the credits at the beginning right now credits are always at the end and the only ones people ever stick around and look at are the ones in the marvel films because they know there's going to be an end credit scene so putting them at the front i mean brilliant idea i always view that nowadays as a bad movie like you've had to fill time or something if you ever see a movie with the credits at the start because you don't see it anymore really right right but it was definitely the way they did it back then and so it's 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 a nice thing to see like it just um yeah for for some reason like i almost feel like yeah like it puts more care into like who made this and who was in it like a little bit more thoughtfulness because you're right the second the credits come up everyone's standing up and walking out of the theater no one's paying attention to you not know. me. If it's an MCU, not me. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. But those are the, the only ones, ones, the Marvel yeah. ones. That's, Nobody yeah. stays for the credits, do they? No. No. Speaking of Marvel end credit scenes, no spoilers, but uh, definitely go check out the um... shit, what's the movie? <laughs> It's oh, Thor, love and oh yeah. Um, okay. Um, I, I did just want to acknowledge that there's a lot of cringe-worthy moments um, in the movie. Of course, again, based on where it's from, but there were just some gross. Just yeah, like you're watching this movie that you have these like kind of warm, fuzzy feelings about, and then you're like, oh god, like really? Did that really? He really just say that? Did that really just happen? Yeah. Did we have yes, to? Did. did we have to spank? A black woman on the arse who's paid to look after you like that was like but to be fair there was other things that i thought were good like in comparison to other old things that we've read and watched that are really bad i thought oh well at least this is trying to be something but yeah that was yeah something else Right, like some of the books that we've read that were just so like just they couldn't seem to redeem themselves. I think yes, this book, this book definitely was nice. I mean, this movie, I'm sorry, was definitely nicer in the fact that like the people were um right, like kind of taking care of the less fortunate and like being more careful about people like that that was a theme but then it still ended up having the things were very normal and even just little things about like the way that you know just like the way like you know kind of husbands were like I'm thinking of all these problems and I'm just going to come home and be mean and like not tell my wife what's going on even that kind of like disparity that you see in older movies where it's like the guy just kind of comes home and he's just like kind of being a dick 
you know, and the, and the wife is there, like she's all perfectly done up, has been cooking all day, taking care of all the kids. Right. And he can't even give her a moment of like, what's going on with you? I don't know. So anyway, tangent watching this again, brought back a book for me. I actually just recently read, it was a different take kind of on the same general theme, but it was the midnight library. I don't know if any of you have read that. I won't give away too much about it, but the synopsis is the main character in the beginning, like these kind of things happen to her that makes her feel like she needs to kill herself. And she does, she like goes, she kills herself, but then she wakes up in this library and the library catalogs, like basically the library catalogs, all of your possible lives you could have had, like if you made a choice at a different point. And it has a book. This is my favorite part. It has a book of all of your regrets. And so like she pulls this book of regrets out. And of course, it's this huge book. And like, but I don't want to give away too much of the book in case anyone wants to read it. But she's allowed to, she's kind of allowed to see how her life could have gone if she selected these different routes, you know, these different choices, different routes in her life. And so like major things like, right, she thought like, I think it was like she didn't pursue um, a band with like her brother and some friends. She didn't marry a boyfriend she had been with for a long time and stuff like that. And so she thought these were like these major things that are like, if only I had made this choice, I would have been perfectly happy. She wasn't where, I mean, in the movie, definitely it was more, he was like, I wish I was not like, I just, me, one person was never born. And then the way that that one person affected, she was actually like kind of going through various choices of how her life could have gone, which was kind of an interesting thing. And so like, if she could have changed those things, make different choices or prevented things from happening, would they have improved her life? The book and this movie, and I believe Ted Lasso also, are all kind of driving to that same conclusion of questioning like kind of what is happiness what makes you a i'm making air quotes failure what is important and i think it's a wonderful life it's a little, a little bit of an oversimplification of that storyline and i i don't mean to criticize it in that way and realizing this was one two-hour movie versus like a full-length novel being able to explore a lot of different things and then ted lasso being well three now we know three sob <laughs> only three seasons right but has like three confirmed? seasons of- is it fully confirmed we're only getting three yeah i think it kind of has been they just keep flip-flopping and i'm never yeah. sure but i know i missed an announcement and my heart skipped to beat i'm 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 holding on to it because i'd rather be joyfully surprised that a fourth season comes than like like i'm trying to just accept it right now yeah, <laughs> but i might be wrong so don't quote me on that if anyone wants to hold on hope please do you have more room to tell a different story in those other formats versus just one kind of one kind of movie because you know you have a whole story to tell you know so that's what i'm saying like it's oversimplification i don't mean to knock the movie in that sense but it, it but in a lot of ways like it quite literally was black and white but was also kind of very black and white and that kind of good and evil there there were many points of differentiation between all these things like that i was just mentioning the book the movie and ted lasso but several ted lasso characters kind of switch, you know, quote unquote, air quotes, switch sides, you know, Rebecca's arc from her motivations in season one and her having her own realizations and growth. Higgins, like we don't really explore, we don't explore it as much as we do with Rebecca, but, you know, he kind of allowed himself to be wrapped up in Rupert's shitty behavior, you know, and he does finally kind of decide to stand up for something and it changes him. You know, Nate is kind of shown, kind of shown the right way to be, but then his ego and sense of what is important, you know, what is strength kind of pushes him towards the negative, especially early on. He kept trying to George, I mean, you know, early in the movie, he kept trying to get out of town. He kept having setbacks, right? Like he was like, I'm going to go on this trip. Like, yeah, that was very sad. That was really hard to watch. And just like watching someone's dream kind of fall apart was, was hard. I really think it's not just a lesson to the people like George who are like nice, nice, nice. And then never gets also a lesson to those of us who people do things for to be grateful and to show 
like to look after them when they're having a tough time, you know, because I don't think they don't really address the fact that there are some people who are just takers and wouldn't come back at the end of the movie and chuck a bunch of money at them. So I think it's a lesson for both of us in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. So, I mean, like definitely we saw kind of George struggling with some stuff early on and like you definitely saw these moments where he was kind of making hard choices and kind of deciding things that were bigger than him, which was very admirable. And, and you saw him struggling with it. You actually saw him kind of like realizing, you know, like when his brother came back and he was offered this opportunity, but he was supposed to take over the, you know, the savings and loan or whatever it was, the family business so that he could finally go on. And he just kind of takes that on. It's also very, I think, traditionally older oldest sibling right the oldest child feels like they have to carry the family was a very stereotypical thing you know he kept having these setbacks and then and so we we have the nuance of ted who's trying to make a difference and move these people and some of them don't like it right like it doesn't all go perfectly well and i feel like you know like even george when he was trying to convince everyone to stay with him when the bank had gone under you know kind of like everyone just kind of was like yep okay like they kind of all just kind of followed along and in, in Ted Lasso I think there is more of that nuance of like you know definitely you know like Jamie was resistant of him you know or even Nate who was pro Ted he wasn't really getting it he wasn't actually getting the, the whole message there even with Higgins like he was kind of having that duality with like kind of you know wanting to help Rebecca but then he found himself liking Ted and Ted's message and that kind of thing so that there was a little bit of this kind of back and forth with people and and people not really getting it people not really following along which you know gives it that nuance then that little bit more of a believability yeah a little more believability and a little bit more nuance and depth to the story. I also rewatched Carol of the Bells this morning, and there was definitely a similar storyline uh, that I believe in the entire arc of the show of someone like Ted, Ted or George. I don't think Ted and I don't think Ted like is a, I don't think Ted and George are exactly like one-to-one, but definitely I feel like Ted is the George character, you know, trying to do the right thing, feeling like he is a failure when things don't work out. This kind of angel coming to save him, this Rebecca Clarence kind of character and the lesson learned. But I think the power of all these stories is the people, right? It's, you know, even even though there's kind of these characters all kind of playing the same roles, it is these different characters, these friendships, these relationships that are built between around people. You know, like I think definitely, I think you you had the gut good sense with George that he in the town, people liked him, you know, the um the martini bar guy, which was really that took, you know, that was funny. Like his name was Martini, but he was at a bar with Martini. Like it was, I just, like it kept, that made me Love giggle. It. Love it. <laughs> so like the people in the neighborhood just like had gotten used to him and liked him. And, and so I think there is that sense of like that neighborhoody kind of like, we're going to take care of each other thing and that connection going on with them. Right. And Ted being this person who's coming from outside, he definitely just, but then started to kind of create those relationships, you know? And like, I think, I think the whole Higgins scene and Carol of the Bells is, uh, a great example of the power of that, of like when Higgins, you know, Higgins kind of like accepted his role in everything that happened with Rebecca and Rupert and some of the stuff he had done back then, and then saw what Rebecca was doing, realized that he, you know, that Ted was making him a better person. You know, Ted was making Higgins want to be a better person. And then that shows by when he had the Christmas and he wasn't expecting anyone to show up. And like, I don't even remember how many people from the team end up like, it's like eight people, eight or 10 people from the team end up coming over. And I think even his wife at one point is like, wow, they really like you, you know, and like that was a change for them. And that was that I, that I love that scene because it's like Higgins is a little bit like he's one of the main characters of the show, but we don't actually explore so much of him as we do some of the other characters. That's and true. I think, really yeah, true. 
And I think Higgins quiet, like, you know, a couple of those scenes, like when he's just like, I'm not, I'm not going to sit around and not tell Beard what I really think about his relationship with James. And he, like, he has, he has really transformed in the way that he, he's bringing everyone together. He's bringing the team together. He is, I don't know exactly how to say it, like kind of supporting Ted. I'm kind of going off script here a little bit, but he's kind of supporting Ted in a less vocal way than Ted is, right? Like Ted kind of says all these things. And like, I think that's a little bit of the dilemma with Ted, right? Is that he's kind of saying some of these things but his actions don't always 100% like, you know, like he's kind of saying a lot of things that he kind of wants to believe them. And I feel like Higgins is more like kind of living it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Higgins tries to speak to Ted in Ted's language as well, which nobody else really does, you know, like throw in the puns and Caesar you later and don't let her get away with it. Like he's really trying to like, you know, engage him in his own way. Yeah. Yeah, like it speaks to him, right? And he's like, this is funny. I want to, you know, or I like this. And so, yeah. And so, and I I felt like the the Higgins, like the Higgins scenario in Carol of the Bells, again, when like this team, like the team feels that comfortable with him. They feel that warmth from him. I mean, to spend a holiday with someone that you don't really care, like, you wouldn't do that if you actually didn't care about the person, right? And I feel like that was a, like, I don't know if it would have been the same like people may have gone over to Ted's house if he had made the same invite because they maybe would have felt like, well, he's the coach I need to go. But they went, you know, like they didn't have to go over to Higgins house, but they did because they felt something where they felt a connection with him. I just I think it's just that Higgins is so genuine at that point. Like his character has evolved like they only got a couple before because like who was Higgins to what degree was he involved in the team and Ted made sure he was as much of a part of the team as he did with Nate and you know yeah. trying to with Rebecca so the players got to know him they got to know that his offer was real and pure and like heartfelt yeah no that's a good point I think you're right about that Ted even also does the thing that George did with the people in the neighborhood right the guy that calls him wanker and like they there's a, you know they have a connection there like you know um Ollie and the Indian restaurant like Ted has created all of these kind of relationships and friendships around him the community does support him you know like May May supports him you know and and likes him and cares about him and it's and it's it's those relationships that we create in our lives that that are very important right it's the friendships but also the people who affect us of those we don't realize we have affected like I, I don't know if you know any of you have ever you know either had someone say something about you or you've said something about one of you know someone in your life where you say to them like oh yeah that day you said this thing to me you know like it meant everything to me and it, it took my life in a direction or I made a decision about something and it's always whenever you hear it when someone says it to you about something you've said or you say it to someone else there's always this moment of like really like that was you a know we comment to me but it meant so much right. to so, yeah you know and it, it's a very interesting and both negative and positive right i i think they're obviously right that there's a lot of examples of same bad when we say passive aggressive things to people we're saying negative things to people it, it has the same effect but towards the bad right it makes people like children that are constantly told something negative they grow up in a certain way or they can grow up to be to grow up in a certain way in a certain environment and that affects everything and so it's you know it's the that butterfly effect you know, when a butterfly, if a butterfly flaps its wings in South America, it can cause, you know, <laughs> that whole, like, but we are all that significant to each other. And I think we don't, we're all very wrapped up in our own things in our own lives. And we don't actually see how much we're affecting people. You know, I mean, God, look at this book club, right? Michaela started this thing and, you know, caught the three of us and we're all just like, oh, 
like this is really interesting. I'm into this and like want to be a part of this. And like, you know, yeah, I don't just, think she expected that, right? I mean, I'm mean, Kylie, you have to speak for yourself here, but I don't think you were expecting. No, right? like I think it was a, a mixture of a few things. It was like when we me and you did Lasso Cone and yeah. everybody after it was like, oh, you just need to do a podcast. And then that was around the same time that Bex and Marita were already replying, and it was just like a little light bulb. Yeah. Moment. But yeah, you you know. Yeah. And it was a matter of you just reaching out and sending us messages saying like, hey, would you be interested? Like I was enjoying the level of engagement that I had. I felt like, oh, this is fun. It's a thing I can engage in. I didn't think beyond that until you put that out in the world to me. And now I can't imagine not doing it. Same. Yeah. God, I don't know. Honestly, I love this place. (laughs) This little place we have. I love it here. (laughs) I love it here. But that, I mean, I, I think the, you know, like, again, just kind of in conclusion, I'll go to my last little comment, you know, again, it's, it's, it's the, it is those, it, it is, it's not always friendships. I, I wrote it's the friendships and the thing, the relationships we create with people, but it isn't always also friendships. Sometimes it is something more just like, even just like in passing, like someone just makes a comment or says something that like you needed to hear for whatever reason, even if it's more of just, again, like whatever someone goes by and says, Oh, I like your hair. I like what you're wearing. I like your dress. I like what you're wearing or something. And it, it gives you that. It's like that moment of just like, wow, like you took the time to say something nice and it just can really like, it can improve your day so much. And so it's, 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 you know, we, as humans, we're all living here together and it is all of us all living here together, even though I, t- right. I'm technically living in this apartment here by myself. Right. But like, I have connections with my neighbors. You're not alone. Right. I'm not alone. Right. But we have that feeling like, oh, I live alone. Well, I know I don't actually, I don't live alone. I, I mean, I technically live alone, but like, I don't because I have a community around me and friends around me and people, you know, people that I talk to on, online, people I talk to my neighbors, people in the neighborhood. I have places I go and they say, you know, they remember me and say hi. And all of those things make up our lives and make up how we, how we treat each other. And I think we all need to be a little bit more considerate of how we, how we are affecting other people and the things that we say, you know, and I, and I just feel like it comes up in Ted Lasso so many, in so many different ways, even just, you know, like the Keely and Roy relationship too. Like when, you know, Keely kind of flip freaks out at Roy and like, it causes a negative consequence, right? Because she didn't take, she didn't take the time to consider, consider it and like talk to him calmly. She just kind of blew up at him. And then look what it causes, right? Like that kind of, you know, and I think Ted Lasso can explore that, that all of that nuance a little bit more than this movie could. I certainly find myself saying out loud the things I used to think in my head that are positive because of like Ted Lasso as well. If you'll notice, he says things to try and trim like, oh, I love your glasses. And like, he's always got something nice to say about somebody. So if I think it out loud and I'm like talking to somebody anyway, I really love that dress, then I'm I'm saying it. I really love your dress. Because, you know, why not? Why the hell not? Yeah. Yeah. Time for some comments from you, Greyhounds. We asked on Twitter, if we see Ted as George Bailey, what other lasso characters can we see in the characters of It's a Wonderful Life? And we got some comments. At Talking for Free on Twitter says Coach Beard as Clarence, Roy and Jamie as Bert and Ernie. Oh, that works really well. I like that. And now back to the podcast. I really enjoyed that, Andrea, and I really related to what you were saying about how we can all have such an impact on each other. And Bex, I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got to say. 
Yeah, well, I guess I'll talk about the impact of a couple of characters, too, but maybe not so much in the positive light. There was something that you said, Andrea, earlier about these characters sort of going from like one end of a spectrum to another or sort of like having a journey and an evolution. And so we can understand like, oh, they behave this way because of this situation and so on. Um, And I want to look at characters who maybe are a little more black and white in terms of like good guy, bad guy. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about Rupert. Rupert Mannion from Ted Lasso. And and honestly, he is the only character right now that I don't understand where he's coming from besides Mm -hmm. money, Mm -hmm. besides money being a guiding factor, right? Like when Rebecca was in the place she was being like manipulative and sneaky and mean about what she was doing with Ted and the team and everything, we learned where that came from. Nate, you know, going from innocent and quiet appearing to what he is at the end of season two, we understand that journey. We might not agree with it, but we we can see where it came from. With Rupert, we don't have any of that. We don't know his background. So he is a much more traditional villain. And I think the same can be said for Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. The only thing that when I see him, it just reminds me of like... um like Citizen Kane, in a sense, like maybe there is a backstory there. But guess what? And I think this might have to do with the movie TV thing as well. But again, we don't know much about Rupert. We don't get a backstory on Mr. Potter. Why did he come to like be the way he was again besides money? I know that Rupert doesn't appear in the Christmas episode, but, you know, we've never had to stick with that. Like, oh, when the when the book or the movie shows up, that's the only episode we talk about. No, we we talk about the whole thing, right? When I was rewatching It's a Wonderful Life, I realized that they had a lot in common and even more than just being like old white men in positions of power. <laughs> you know, that's the obvious. <laughs> I do think that's an important place to start. So first, I want to recap real quickly when Rupert shows up. And he's been in six episodes of Ted Lasso, although I would argue that three of them are relatively insignificant in terms of the quantity of time, not necessarily in the impact he had in those episodes. So he was in season one, episode four, for the children, season one, episode eight, the diamond dogs, season one, episode nine, all apologies and season one, episode 10, the hope that kills you in those last two episodes of season one, he his interactions with the other characters are, are minimal, if anything. I think in one of them, he's just sitting there watching the game with Bex. Like, you don't. Yeah, he's whatever. more montage reaction sort of. Yeah. Yeah. In season two, he only appears in two episodes. No weddings and a funeral. That's season two, episode 10. And then season two, episode 12, Inverting the Pyramid of Success. That's another one where he's just there at the very, very end. He comes in real quick and like whispers something into Nate's ear. And that's that. I'm going to focus primarily on For the Children, Diamond Dogs, and No Weddings and a Funeral. Mostly the first two, but a little bit on the last one because I have like a little funny bit for that last one. In For the Children, this is where we meet Rupert. And, you know, Right off the bat, you get the patronizing vibes, same ones that you get from Mr. Potter, like, oh, they're there, you know, like, oh, you know, I've got this power, I've got, but I'm going to shroud it in this fake sugary, like, 
innocence or something. It's just not innocence. That's not really the right word, but kind of a popularity. Just like, like fake popularity, kind of sort of being popular when he's not really got any friends. Like no fake beneficence, really. Like that's it. That's, that's the fair. word. That's that's the word. Like he, they come across as like, oh, I am this kind and benevolent being that is going to grant you this or that or help you with this thing or that thing when really there's like a manipulative undertone to that message so like they don't really do anything but then they're just like well you're welcome and you're like you haven't done anything thank you thank you yeah. i am here i am here that is all you need correct <laughs> in the episode there's a point where rupert calls himself a wealthy good for nothing in the film, it's George who who originally says it, but Potter does reference back to being called a warped, frustrated old man. The reality is they may say these words, but they don't see themselves as this. They don't acknowledge that like other people see them this way. They just think, oh, yeah, yeah, haha, that's what I am. Oh, well. And they don't care if other people see them like this anyway, because they've got the power at the end of the day. Rupert makes a, a patronizing comment to Rebecca about, oh, not too much champagne. I think he calls her love or something like that. Not too much champagne love. Dear. Like He calls her dear, which oh, is dear. even worse. Like, is it? Mm. But it is in Britain because <laughs> dear is something that like is, is, is age related, I think. So it's like infantilizing her as well. Uh, or the opposite. Like oh. in that scene, I really felt like he was trying to make her feel what she was most worried about. Like, or not really oh. what he thought she was most worried about as looking right and, and that making ties, airports old. So that ties in with the the dress that she chose to right. wear too. Potter in the film, he's constantly talking down to George Bailey and belittling him for his approach to life and his business. Like, oh, I know you want to travel. You, you should be able to go do this and like be free, even though he knows very well that that's not going to be George's reality. They both use money to assert their power. Right, Rupert. Oh, here's one million pounds at the auction. Like, I'm just going to give this. Aren't I so great? Aren't I so wonderful and nice and generous? And it's for the children. We know it's not. <laughs> and even in the film, obviously, the, the financial numbers are a bit different. But Mr. Potter offers George 20K a year for a job that would basically include closing down the building and loan. Right? He's like, oh, I'll give you this job. I'll give you $20,000 a year. And George's like, well, what about the building and loan? And he's like, oh, confound it. I think he's why he actually says <laughs> something like that. He, he's doing everything he can to shut down that building and loan. And I think this is interesting because, you know, the one million pounds, that's a huge donation where we live in the same time period as Ted Lasso is taking place. So we understand that value, that money. 20,000, um, there's a point in that conversation where George says that he's making 45 a week and, and that's $45. So this raise that uh, Mr. Potter is offering him is approximately 10 times his yeah, current. Yeah, I, I, I think it comes out to about a quarter million a year in, in today's money. Yeah. Well, not even converting to like today's money, but like his annual no, what income, sure. What sure, he was already that. making was like 2000 something a year. And now he's going to be offered 20,000. Right. So that is a huge right. incentive. You know, the minute he touches his hand, it's like he just knows he can feel. No, this is not a good deal. 
but he's never thinking about taking the money for himself as well. He's thinking about taking the money for his, like for that short amount of time he thinks about it. It's for his family and his kids, right? It's not like yeah. just for him. So, Oh no, anyway, sure. He, it's and- cute how quickly he goes, no, actually, fuck you. <laughs> Marita? So, well, something I thought was interesting because you talk about touching his hand and just getting that sense is, you know, everyone else, because the movie spans 30 years, right? And everyone else is aged through the movie, even, you know, Jimmy Stewart ages through. Potter is the same age throughout. He is the same crusty old dude for 30 years. And it's all, I mean, that has to be intentional, right? They could have made Barrymore look older, right? So it's almost like he's this existential evil. You know what I mean? Like this unchanging force of malevolence. I, I, I just thought that was an interesting choice. And, and I think that's supported by like touching his hand kind of gives George mm-hmm. the yeah yeah absolutely very well, of his time to demonize the disabled as well just want to point that out <laughs> very of its time yes both characters are manipulative Rupert will manipulate anyone he can but especially Rebecca we see this in the auction but we also see it and I'm going to bring this up because I'm not really talking about that episode at all but it's in the season two finale we see it with the praise that he gives Nate after hiring him and just like kind of that way that He's like lifting Nate up, but for his own nefarious purposes. And Potter does the same thing. I mean, we see it in all the ways he tries to insert himself into the town, the things that he's buying up and the things that that he's unable to control and, and, and how frustrated that makes him. They're both super sneaky and deceptive. I think we all assume that Rupert did actually call Robbie Williams and tell him not to come. And I don't think he was like, hey, let's do this thing where you don't come. He's probably like, oh, we don't need you anymore. And Robbie Williams is like, oh, okay, no worries. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't like Robbie Williams. Well, I'm not. He's a bit of a twat, to be honest. So that kind of makes sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. I would whether whether Robbie Williams was in on it or not, I think matters so much less in this case. That's very true. Because all he wanted to do was hurt Rebecca. And when Ted calls him out on it, he's like, well, that would make that would have what do you say? Well, that would have made me a real piece of shit, wouldn't it? And it's like, um, yeah, it would. Yeah, because you are. <laughs> and you did. And you are. <laughs> and your white suit looks shit. Fuck you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm so, I can't, like I hate Rupert. He looked damn good. He looks uh, damn good in that show. He's enough. an attractive older man. I'm sorry. Yes, I've yeah, said yeah. it. You've you've just got the the other Rupert in your mind though, <laughs> like Rupert Giles, yeah. <laughs> not Rupert Mannion. No. Um, but we see this this sneakiness and deception with Potter as well, right? When Uncle Billy loses the eight thousand dollars that he like wraps up in Potter's newspaper and everything, Potter knows who the money belongs to, and he lets like shit hit the fan anyway he's like oh well let's see how this plays out this is funny maybe this will be the thing that does in the building and loan he cares more about the downfall of george bailey and the building and loan than about doing the right thing he's like i'm gonna let you get arrested even though i have that eight thousand dollars right here and it's not like he needs it it's not even let him get arrested it's because he's a shareholder he has him arrested right that's that's right and and i think I think it, I, I, I will be curious to see if it's predictive of the show because Potter, you know, we get a happy ending. It's a wonderful life, but Potter doesn't get a comeuppance, right? He doesn't get yes. nailed for stealing what would be six figures in today's money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? But then he doesn't get the happiness. And I think that's what they were trying to point out. No, well, so that's fair enough. But his own punishment. 
yeah we have to assume that punishment for himself we don't ever he doesn't actually get it right like i think that's what you're saying marita right like there's no actual like the thing that would piss him off is to take his money right it's kind of like i think and right when we talk about things today in the modern world it's it's that people there are no consequences for things and the consequence Mm -hmm. has to be something important to him he's lost his moral high ground whatever years ago like he sold his soul at some point many many years ago and we haven't seen that happen today it's the money he had would have to lose his business for it to mean something to him and he's never that's that consequence will never happen to him and his status as well i think because obviously the the town being called pottersville afterwards Mm -hmm. is clearly like loves being that guy yeah yeah that that scene like i feel like was inspiration for back to the future too but Anyway, with all these things that, you know, both Rupert and Potter do throughout the film and the show, they seem to pull one over on most of the character or not not the the main characters, but sort of the background characters. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, that's just the way they are. We accept it. We don't question it. But Ted and Rebecca see through Rupert and George sees through Potter. So, you know, right from his first appearance, we kind of get that parallel. When we move into the Diamond Dogs, you know, this is the episode with the famous dart scene between Rupert and Ted. And here and in It's a Wonderful Life, we see our two heroes not giving these old old white men in positions of power, the satisfaction of winning against them. So both Rupert and Potter come around flaunting what they have to those who are struggling, right? We see Rupert dropping his engagement news on Rebecca, as well as the fact that his new fiance is a partial owner of the team. He's like, oh, I know I can't own the team, but like, what's to say she can? And and because they're not married at that point, there is no like conflict of interest under the law. In the film, Potter uses his extreme wealth to cover the people when the banks crash. But he's like, oh, I'll give you 50 cents on the dollar. So like he's actually the one who is getting money from that deal. They're both shown throwing away their wealth as a way to maintain their power over others. And we see both Rupert and Potter underestimating Ted and George respectively. This is, of course, the episode where Ted gives his speech about being curious and not judgmental. Rupert and, and Potter, they judged everyone and everything around them. Instead, they should have been curious, right? I mean, we need a villain, so obviously there's a good reason they, they're not, but things would be different if they were. In Ted Lasso, Rupert walks away with his tail between his legs at the end of the dart match. You know, he doesn't get to sit in the in the box that that's all he wanted to do just to kind of lord his presence over Rebecca. It was for nothing else. He probably gets a better view from home on the TV, right? And it's a wonderful life. We see that Potter never really wins against George Bailey and the love of the community for him. Again, in both cases, as Marita mentioned, I mean, at least up to this point in Ted Lasso, we've only got two seasons so far. We don't have any sort of comeuppance for Rupert at this point, and we certainly never see it for Potter in the film. The last episode I want to bring up is No Weddings and a Funeral. And this is a he's a pretty small part of this episode as well in terms of the minutes on the screen. But there were a couple moments that I want to point out that I th- thought made in, they, they could make interesting parallels with the film. So the first one is that he shows up to this funeral uninvited, making himself a part of the mourning when he's not wanted. Now, Potter is officially on the board of the building and loan. So he does have and I think he's the head of the board, too. He does have 
a reason to be in that room after the death of George's father. But he's not like a wanted presence. It was kind of a thing to sort of maybe get him to like tone it down with his like desire to take over. I don't know where that thought process came from. Like the last thing I would want to do is put like the guy trying to shut us down on the board. But 1946, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Plot, plot. In both of these cases, their manipulation comes back into play here, right? Rupert is gifting the shares of the team to Rebecca, right? That's the big thing. That's like a funeral gift. I'll just give you give you these shares. We don't we don't have time for it. Really, it's because he's gearing up to buy West Ham. And I'm assuming logically so that you can't be owner of two different teams, <laughs> even partial owner. And since they're now married, that there would be a conflict of interest at that point. And Potter, again, is trying to get the building alone closed because he knows George doesn't want to stay around. He's like, oh, you know, George is supposed to be catching a train and catching a boat and like going off to you know, he'd already given up his his trip to Europe that he was going to take before he went away to college. And it's just one thing after another that he's he's giving up. And so Potter is kind of banking on that, that George is going to make that selfish decision. Selfish, not necessarily in a bad way and in a negative way, but like he's going to act for himself because he just doesn't see that George really cares so deeply about the building and loan, the community, his family, all of this stuff. It's so much a part of him. So this is this is my little like silly wishful thinking bit, right? In the episode, Sassy tells Rupert to fuck off and die. And then later on, Rebecca's mother calls Rupert not to his face, but she calls him a self-righteous shit. And like, obviously, we don't see that degree of name calling in the film, right? It's 1946 after all. But like, I feel like if it had been allowed both George or maybe Harry, maybe maybe Harry when he came back from war and Mr. Bailey would have said these things either to or about Potter. Like just have been like, you know what? Instead of calling him a warped, frustrated old man, they'd be like, you're a self-righteous shit. Well, Sam <laughs> Wainwright. Fuck off and die. <laughs> then Sam Wainwright, surely. Uh, right? Is that the hee-haw guy? Yeah. Listen. You're saying he would have said that to Potter? Or- oh, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 He strikes me as the type. Yeah. Overall, in terms of actual appearances in the show and film, both Rupert and Potter are minor characters, like in terms of physical presence and screen time. But in terms of their impact and influence on those around them, they are major characters. They're you don't have Rebecca behaving the way she does if it's not for Rupert. You don't have George questioning as many of his decisions if it weren't for the bug in his ear of Potter. I don't think anyway, you know, their presence, even when they're not physically around and they unfortunately influence the actions of our heroes like Ted, Rebecca and George, at least at one point or another. It's exactly like what Andrea was just saying is they don't need to be in every episode, but the impacts there, right? The over the over umbrella impact of their crap. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's after looking at the positive side, as Andrea mentioned with our all our hero characters, uh, you know, I thought we'd take a minute to look at our villains as well. Have any of you watched that animated show on Apple TV, um, Central Park? Oh, is it good? It's, it's I think it's great. It's a, it's like it's a, a comedy musical animated. 
really quick, the story is that there's a rich lady there in New York. She owns a hotel and she wants to buy, she hates Central Park. So she wants to buy Central Park and basically remove the park and like build up a, a an area with her, her name on it. And so like we come to the scene, which I think this might be the end of the series. I'm not entirely sure, but like she finally like maneuvers and gets the money to buy Central Park and then finds out at the last moment, one of the people that aren't underwriters that you don't know their names, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're a part of the deal, but none of their name never gets mentioned, but they are funding a lot of it. Turns out to be her brother. And her brother all along wanted the hotel because it's their family hotel and she got it. And it's like this moment where she's just like, she realizes she can't go through with her deal. She's wanted Central Park all this time because she can't get rid of this hotel with her name on it. And it's like that, like conniving, like rich people, like they can't, you know what I mean? Like they do have something they care about, but it's like, it's all wrapped in money and it's all wrapped in their power. And they can't, it's a, I think it's a good show. I recommend watching it. But it, when you were talking, it was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about Central Park, but it's the same kind of like, this, she's a little rich white lady, mm-hmm. She's horrible and evil. And yeah, she wants to take Central Park away from New York. I mean, come on, <laughs> you can't do that. I mean, you could only do that <laughs> if you give it back to the people you displace there when you exactly. build the park, but yes, please. that's clearly not her agenda. <laughs> and after you've done that, do Lake Linear. Time for some comments from you, Greyhounds. At Will's Home on Twitter, thanks Higgins as the Angel Clarence, Nate has become Potter, and Roy as the drunk, bitter version of the drunk storekeeper. Ooh, interesting. And now back to the podcast. Bex, love it. Love that we focus on the villains for a bit. Now, Marita, we're off to, I'm looking forward to this, let's go. Okay. So as always, I'd like to dive into the literature and there is so much that has been written in the academic literature about It's a Wonderful Life. And it's it's really interesting with It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I think it, it shows how much the movie emotionally resonates with people, that people will project all sorts of things onto the movie. And so you'll see people in the literature writing about it like it's a profoundly conservative film and like it's a profoundly liberal film and like it's a, a vision of the the true moral center of of the country like it's all over the place uh and i i think there's a funny comparison there because like if you look around you can find ways where conservatives will try to claim ted lasso right there is a piece it's not academic literature right but there's a piece that's published that talks about how mad the woke left would be if they realized how conservative ted lasso as a show is and if you ignore like all of the available textual evidence and don't get any of the jokes i could see how maybe you'd find that compelling if you really really wanted to believe it but no i don't <laughs> no me me either i just i just have to say Michaela, that's another quote uh, that's another clip to use it's just all the faces we just made as marita was saying that yeah we're just definitely. Like, that's definitely. a load of bullshit it's like when people watch the boys and think why is homelander turned bad it's like he's been a shit from the very start the what the fuck were you watching but if, you, if yeah. you look i mean like you know all of the jokes in ted lasso that make it clear and everything that makes it clear that the politics are so progressive in, in ted lasso but then you have like mitt romney dressing up as ted lasso so for the for the academic literature, 
in addition to people from all directions claiming it, it also opens it up to critique from all sides, right? There's critique from all directions. And my personal favorite, and this is just so funny to me, there's uh, a piece in the journal Film History called Bankers and the Common Man in Bedford Falls, how the FBI determined that It's a Wonderful Life was a subversive film. So the, the piece is written by John Noakes. And basically he's gone through like recently, more recently, you know, 20 years ago, released FBI documents when they were looking for communist infiltration into the film industry, right? And the FBI had a working group out of their West Coast field office that was people working in the industry who were looking at subversive films. So they were analyzing subversive films, looking for communist propaganda. It was a short-lived little working group because, you know, for World War II, the Russians were our allies. And so we had to, you know, be nice. In 1947-ish, right, the House Un-American Activities Committee took over. And so but in the interim, there's this little committee meeting, and they came up with a group of like a list of eight films that they found to be subversive. And they had three criteria for concern, right? So one of them was that values or institutions judged to be particularly American are smeared or presented as evil in a movie. And things that are particularly American can include things like wealthy capitalists, rich people having money. The second thing is values or institutions judged to be particularly anti-American or pro-communist are glorified in a movie. And one of the themes that could be problematic here is the common man. And then the third is casual references to current events that are made like that belittle American political institutions or promote the communist party line. It's a Wonderful Life was actually found by this committee to be concerning and subversive on both of those first two levels. They found it, first of all, subversive for their portrayal of Potter as a bad guy. And I'm going to quote directly from this journal article because it makes me laugh. The report argued that the portrayal of Potter as a Scrooge type was a rather obvious attempt to discredit bankers that resulted in Potter being the most hated man in the picture. This, they claimed, was a common trick used by communists. To buttress this argument, the special agents reported an informant's claim that he would not have made the movie this way, and that the film would not have suffered at all had Potter simply been portrayed as protecting the funds of his depositors and following state banking laws. Jesus <laughs> so the people on this committee, The people on this committee are screenwriters, right? And can you imagine trying to write a screenplay if you don't know how fucking villains work? <laughs> It is like, amazing to me. The stupidest thing I've ever heard said. Like, oh, we just been more like protective. They just said that. I feel like they just said that to cover their asses. It had to be. Come on now. <laughs> it's so only really subversive if you're a dick. Well, and so they also found that it was subversive because the protagonist, George Bailey, is so in favor of the common man, right? And that's socialist. And it completely elides the fact that he's a fucking banker. George Bailey is a banker. He espouses capitalist ideals because he wants people in houses because they're better customers, right? <laughs> they completely missed the point on that. And, you know, like the communist hunters of the late 40s and the 50s, they weren't really known for critical thinking or nuance. But the thing that makes me super, super, super happy about this is one of the screenwriters on that committee who found It's a Wonderful Life to be subversive is the author of Ted Lasso's favorite book, Ayn Rand. And that is just... Gee, what the hell? Really? I really need Jason and Brett. (laughs) Jason and Brandon and Brett. All I need them to listen to this. Like, come on, listen to our podcast, guys. (laughs) So I, I just love that. That's t- and it explains like her reasoning there explains why I think a lot about how 
like bad her writing is because she really doesn't understand what makes things compelling and interesting or have any logical flow. So normally I do comparisons between what we're watching and Ted Lasso, but today I'm going to do some contrast. So the literature, I mean, covers, if you look at It's a Wonderful Life, I've read some great stuff. There's theology, there's the visual rhetoric that Capra uses, there's all sorts of things placing it sociologically in its time. But I'm going to talk specifically about gender roles and women's roles and how those are treated in both works. Yes. And I do think it's a testament to how well the film is made and how masterful Capra is at his art that the misogyny in a lot of the books that we've read is so glaring and raw and it's easy to call out, but It's a Wonderful Life is such a feel-good movie. It's so easy to gloss over, but wow, is it there? (laughs) So a lot of the information that I'm going to talk about from from an It's a Wonderful Life perspective is from a published piece in the Journal of Film and Video by Robert Buca, and it's called Imagining the Post-War Small Town, Gender and the Politics of Land landscape in It's a Wonderful Life. And so if we think about the two main women in It's a Wonderful Life, we have two, like a study in contrasts, right? We have Mary and then we have Violet. It's important to contextualize this. This film was made immediately post-war. So we have men coming back from fighting into like this radically changed social landscape where women all of a sudden have all this agency that they never had before. And they were out doing things and the structure of the family is is fundamentally changing, right? And they're trying to recontextualize themselves into this environment on top of the PTSD that a lot of them are dealing with. And so we have this two women in the film and they're coded completely differently, right? Mary is the height of domesticity. If you see her in the film, she's always either with George or she's with the children. She's never off on her own, right? She's not her own person. She's within the context of the family. And then we've got Violet and she's like raw and she's got this alarming sexuality and she's so independent and she's this object of male sexual desire. She doesn't feel bad about it. Right. It's like her. I love her. I love her. I loved her from the minute she walked into the little shop and she and Mary said to her, I think they were the kids, right? Mary and Violet. That was them. Right. She said to her, you you like all boys. And she's like, what's wrong with that? And I was like, go Violet. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And and this coding is it's not subtle, right? It's it's coded into how they're filmed. It's coded in like you know, Donna Reed's Mary is all soft focus. She's bathed in this kind of heavenly angelic light, right? The scenes with Gloria Graham who play. Uh, Violet, they're so coded as more urban, like this noirish kind of contrasting neon, but dark sort of sharp kind of look. And even in their later careers, if you look what they went on to do, Donna Reed went on to the Donna Reed show, right? She was like mid middle class housewife through the 50s. And Graham played like femme fatales in film noir. That was how her career went from them. So like this tracked them like the rest of their careers. And so Mary has no real role outside her family, but she's clearly super smart. Um, and as Buca points out, and this is a quote, in contrast to the once shrewd but now failing Potter and the well-intentioned but bungling Baileys, Mary seems about the only character in the film who consistently engineers positive financial transactions. And that's true, right? She's the only one who does. She uses the honeymoon money to stave off the run on the bank, right? She manages to buy the house, like almost magically. I don't even know how you just ferret that money away and poof, have a house. And she raises the funds to bail George out at the end, right? But her intelligence is only ever used to support George's endeavors. That's all it's there for. But and that's so all we are for, Maria. Didn't you know that? That's all we exist for. <laughs> exactly. My theory on the money for the house is that if you see the mailbox outside their house, it says Mrs. Hatch. So I'm assuming there's some sort of inheritance from her mm, father's death. Nice. That's my nice. that's my theory on that. But it's a lot so of what you're saying really hard. ties into and I study this a little bit differently than than the dichotomy, the like the Madonna whore 
Oh, exactly. Oh, absolutely. You know, but if even if we were to bring in George Bailey's mother, then it ties into like what I look at is like women have three options to be like the virginal pure woman to be like the prostitute whore sex worker whatever or to be a mother and like that's it you go from virgin to one of the other two or you can stay virgin but then of course you get like that becomes a negative thing eventually as well yeah and mary's mom versus bailey's mom those two moms how different they were and like just like the you know mary's mom she was just like sell her off to the first bidder like you know, but oh more importantly, Sam Wainwright, because he had money. Exactly. Right. Yes. Like Sam, yes. Sam Wainwright was he was in business like he got into that plastics business eventually. If your daughter's Mary's- a commodity, you need to sell high. Right. right. So- and the Baileys were not wealthy and and everyone knew it. All right. So we get to like something that's so emblematic of how Mary's viewed. So we get to this Pottersville portion of the film, right? Where George is seeing what would happen if he'd never been born. Everything has these horrible things happen, right? His brother and everyone his brother would have saved in World War II is dead. Uncle Billy has like lost it. He's been committed. Mr. Gowers, because George wasn't there to intervene, accidentally poisoned that child. So he spent a bunch of time in jail and now he's like destitute. All these horrible things. And we get to Mary and George is like freaking out, wanting to know what happens. And we're like looking for this fate worse than a fate worse than death, right? And she's an unmarried librarian. <laughs> it's like the dream. Yeah. Are we 100% sure that's not her best life? (laughs) It's like, it's when people use cat lady as an insult. What's the thing about that? Like, that fucking sounds amazing. Mary is winning it. Mary right? is winning at life. And, and of course, within the context of the film, right, she's lost all her cultural capital because she doesn't have a family and she's not pretty anymore, right? And there's some symbolism there with the library because it sort of represents George's unfulfilled dreams in general, but for the love of fucking God, right? <laughs> this is the worst and, thing you can do to her. Nick, you can do anything you want. Of course, what makes, her not, what makes her not pretty is that they put glasses, uh, glasses on her face. I was just going to say, that was literally what I was just going to say. We know she's not pretty because she's got glasses. Obviously. Can't see her I'm the ugly one here, all right, folks? No, I'm just kidding. So, like, as the film progresses, we have Mary cast as needing to be protected, right? Protected within the family. And then we have Violet. Effectively, Violet has this raw sexual energy that needs to be contained, suppressed, right? That's super important. And that view of women's roles was really reflected in the social landscape for women that went through the post-war U.S. into the 50s, right? When things, you know, were, you know, the good old days, when things were really, really oppressive and limiting for women. And interestingly, and we're mainly going to talk about gender politics with regard to women, but in a similar vein, George has an interesting role gender-wise because he's the lone, like, virile masculine presence in the town during the war because he lost his hearing, right? There are other men there, but he's the one who's a fighting age that didn't go. And so I'm going to quote from from that article again. And George's struggle and eventual reintegration involve more than the drama of imperiled masculine presence. In addition, if we are to put any stock in the Pottersville sequence, it seems the very identity of the town, its social, economic, and physical landscape is dependent on a successful reintegration of George Bailey. So bringing this man back into the town and putting him back in the place, just like we were trying to bring, we, I wasn't obviously alive then, just like they were trying to bring all of these men coming back from the war, right? Getting them reintegrated is absolutely fundamental to the functioning, to the existence of these places. So bringing this on to Ted Lasso, you know, I posted on the book club's Twitter and I asked people who they saw in the, in the Ted Lasso characters. And I posited George's Ted. I got a little bit of pushback on that. 
I'm never sure how to handle Twitter handles because people's name can change. It's only the at that doesn't really change. One of the responses I got was from talking for free, who put Beard as Clarence. Uh, I absolutely accept him as an omnipotent guardian angel. Absolutely. Roy and Jamie is Burton Ernie. That's good. Rupert is Mr. Potter. Agreement there. Nate is Sam, Way- Sam Wainwright. I can see that. Uh, Sam Obasanya as his brother, Harry. And Rebecca is Violet. And so I actually asked for a little bit more on Rebecca as Violet because I am so used to seeing so many people. And again, I'm agnostic on Ted and Rebecca ending up together, but I'm so used to people wanting them together that I expected her to instantly be cast in the Mary role because that would put her opposite Ted. Uh, and talking for free responded, and I think made a great point. So Rebecca Violet would never end up as a lonely spinster librarian without Ted George. Rebecca and Violet would shop the same dress rack. <laughs> true i like that i like that i I think that's brilliant and i just say i I didn't realize the burton ernie thing till right the second (laughs) oh so i looked that up and that is um not actually the case they were really based off of abbott and costello but it's just a fun coincidence so or like burton ernie in sesame street obviously came later they were not based off of Right. Burton Ernie from the show. They were based off of I bet still just yeah. to clear that up. But I wanted to like in that Ted Becca thing, it's like, you know, I'm not a big time Ted Becca shipper because like Sam. Period. <laughs> um, but I will definitely acknowledge uh, that there there is a parallel. Like I do see I, and I love that take of of this person saying like Violet and that, and that she wouldn't end up as a spinster without Ted around. But there was one moment that really like gave me the Ted Becca vibes. And that's um, early on the film when George walks by her house and she opens up the window and like yells down to him on the street. And that's just like, yeah, well, we've seen Rebecca do that to Ted from her office, right? Right. Lunch plans. Lunch plans. (laughs) Well, and then in the scene that actually invokes It's a Wonderful Life, right, where we see Ted watching where, you know, George Bailey's jumping in the river, she gets his attention. She doesn't ring the bell, right? She throws a rock at his window, which is also a callback to It's a Wonderful Life, because before they move into the house, when it's just an old haunted house, they throw rocks at the window of that house, right, in in the film. Um, So I thought that was interesting. But I'm actually going to get back to talking about the main women characters of Ted Lasso, you know, Rebecca and Keeley, right? Those are our, our main women, at least through season one. And they're both coded as Violet, right? If we code them as someone in the movie, I, I do see the Ted Becca parallel, but they're really like, both of them are independent and ambitious. Both of them enjoy sex with multiple men outside the confines of any committed relationship. And that's okay, right? That's the thing they're doing and it's fine. There's nothing that they do that requires them to be filmed in this noirish. like the only noir really filming we get is Beard and Beard After Hours, right? They both have their moments of being filmed and when they're bathed in soft light looking like gorgeous angels, right? That nothing about their ambition or their intelligence or their sexuality marks them as something less or other, right? And I love that about this show. Meanwhile, We've got the men and Ted Lasso taking on domestic roles, right? Ted is always baking biscuits for Rebecca. That's a huge plot point all the way through. Higgins is managing the day-to-day tasks of everyone like a household would be managed. And he's always sacrificing himself and his space, right? This is a thing moms do all the time, right? They get like, your kid needs something and, and it's like, you know, my child eats a lot. So he's always like, on my plate, are you going to eat that? Just go ahead, right? So that, that's Higgins giving up his office to everyone that's all the time, so always, cute. right? That's such a mom thing to do. I, I was oh, going to say, so 
at the beginning of our recording, you said something about the space that you're in being all out of sorts because your child had been using it as oh, like yeah. a crafting spot. We've, so we've like got, that's more we've evidence. Got, we've got Han Solo and Carbonite right here. Yeah. So I- exactly that. And and then like the majority of the childcare we see in the show in terms of screen time, that's Roy, right? All of these domestic tasks we see being done in Ted Lasso are done by men. To some extent, a large extent, that's a reflection of the social landscape that the show is set in. But there are still a lot of modern current shows that look nothing like that, that cast women in very traditional roles. And so Ted Lasso does this wonderful thing with gender that's very different from It's a Wonderful Life, where we have women who are like valued and they're vital to their communities without conforming to these horrific socially enforced roles of previous generations. It's like slut shaming them, basically. Because mm. Violet was like slut shamed the whole way through without them actually saying anything. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, you see that to some extent with the reactions of some people to Sassy in Ted yeah. Lasso. But that's a yeah. fan thing. That's not her, the show's treatment of her. The show doesn't do that. It's certain people don't like Sassy and they pull that out. And a lot of times it feels like internalized misogyny when I see it and it makes me kind of sad. That's um, probably, you feel like that probably because it is. <laughs> Fair enough. But another important thing about what Ted Lasso is is doing, it's a wonderful life. The entire existence of this community is dependent on George and how he proceeds through life. But we have this community whose existence and success isn't completely dependent on Ted fulfilling masculine roles, right? He doesn't come in and save the day the way George does in his various battles with Potter to save the building and loan. And a lot of times, you know, Ted's there and supportive and he's definitely sort of the glue that holds the community together. But the role of saving the day is fulfilled by someone else, right? We have Nate coming in and saving the day with his play calling. We have Sharon saving the day with helping Danny through his problems, right? It decentralizes this need for a hero, right? Because it makes the community the most important thing. And that is actually good for men just as much as it is for women, right? It allows men to be fully realized human beings who don't have ridiculous, unnecessary pressures put on them. And it allows women to be fully realized human beings, which makes, you know, women more interesting (laughs) Um, and actually lets women exist as people. So that's what I have. Women are people. (sighs) I know. I I mean, that's not my country. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm so, so glad I live on the West Coast, but yes, yes. There is a lot of work we need to do in this country. Anyway. Listen, you're not, it's not just you, you know, like, I, I know that the, the American cycle and news is, is focused on it, but it's happened in, in some degree all over. Yeah. It's like we're going backwards, you know? Yeah, you know, it really is. But, you know, I, this was particularly a reference to Roe v. Wade because I'm doing research on it for my other podcast. So I'm like, ooh, yikes. There was one thing I wanted to, uh, there's a quote that I wanted to pull in and I'm not sure how to make it work. It's something from the gender of politics and landscape and it's actually referring to someone else's work. But the quote is the relationship between a film's hero and his environment is always reciprocal in that the power with which a hero is able to save his community is something generated by the collective in the first place. So George could only save his community because they are willing to work together with him, right? And in the same way, to the extent that, you know, Ted doesn't do these dramatic, he does the white knighting in the um, dart scene, right? But it's not him all the time, but he sort of holds this community together in a way that the community allows itself to be saved, if that makes sense. That does make yeah, the first. Sense. What was what is I don't remember the exact line. Hopefully, one of you do when he says about Roy's heart. He's like the first thing that needs to fall is in Roy's heart. 
Domino? Maybe? It, I think it is a domino. Yeah. He needed each of that. Every, every one of them needed to believe in what he was saying. It wasn't him making it happen. What was it like? Trickle down economics doesn't work, but trickle down support. support dark, dark. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Time for some comments from you, Greyhounds. At Talking for Free, thanks Rebecca as Violet, Rupert as Mr. Potter, Nate as Sam Wainwright, Sam Obasanya as Brother Harry. Oh, you're really good at this. And now back to the podcast. Excellent. I, I, I really enjoyed that, um, as I always do, but I did really enjoy it. So it's me now, and I had the thought, because at the end with Clarence, who, by the way, I think it's great that Clarence gets his wings through George as well, because unknowingly George is just helping this other dude out that's been judged. At. Oh, just so cute. But I wanted to see what it would be like or what things would not have happened if it wasn't for the show or the character, Ted Lasso. I've done it in little segments. So first we'll start with tourism. Sales are up at the Prince's Head and there's been more American tourists visiting London. You just get everywhere you look, don't you? The knitwear shop across from Ted's doors really embraced Ted Lasso and sells a lovely themed merch. It's an Italian knitwear shop called, you're going to have to help me out, um, Real Camiseria. Real Camiseria? I don't know. Are, that, that would be Spanish, pretty, but... No, you did pretty that, good with that. That, was, that, that sounded is good. Is that okay? Yeah. It's, You're it's good. Just, yeah, Leave I'm bad yours enough. in. Don't Leave yours in. English. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm bad enough with English. I need to master that before I try it. Say it in Scots. Real Camiseria. So that's quite cool. You know, like, it's had a literal impact on, pe- you know, people in the area. Uh, and this this shop is now even selling like their own sort of Ted Lasso knitwear, which I think is really cute and I need to get there to buy some. I think for fun stuff, a heck of a lot more people were giving their friends and loved ones biscuits just for the hell of it. There was I got so some. much bacon. Did you get some? I Who did. And she even put it in a little pink box. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. I mean, if I could bake, I would have done it, but that I would just be insulting somebody by giving them anything that I baked. But so many biscuits. They'd be around. like the real biscuits that Hannah had to eat in season one <laughs> yeah, before exactly. they tasted good. <laughs> exactly. People would be like, don't ever give this to me again. But yeah, a lot of baking. Loved that. I'm going to talk about the amazing moments that we just would never have got if it wasn't for Ted Lasso. And that is, first and foremost, Phil Dunster's spectacular goal that he actually did score from the halfway line in the episode The Signal. I, like... That was just, and you could tell Brendan was desperate to like put that out because like, like the episode was only like three seconds before he tweeted it. And it was just such a fantastic moment for the whole cast, I think. Like imagine that pulling them all together. So that's really cool. The time some of the team convinced a reporter outside an actual game that Danny Rojas was real. If you have not <laughs> seen that, that's a fantastic clip. They were all just getting together and just like the unspoken tacit agreement that they were just going to take the piss and pretend Danny was real was so fantastic in that. I loved it. Such a team. Brett would never have met Oscar the Grouch and I don't know if I could cope without that because not even just like it's so cute but like you could tell it's something that meant so incredibly much to him that it was just so cute. Brett wouldn't have signed his overall deal with Warner Brothers either. Now when I say these things wouldn't have happened I want to make it clear I don't think I think there's a lot of people in Ted Lasso in fact practically all of them that would succeed just fine without Ted Lasso. It's not like I'm saying Ted Lasso's made these people or anything like that. I just want to make it clear. It's just a factual thing, like where people would have been and what was happening. I am about to drop two large spoilers for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
So if you have not seen Spider-Man No Way Home or Thor Love and Thunder, skip ahead to the 1.13 mark. Right, I'm going to do an MCU section. So this is a warning for anybody who hasn't seen Spider-Man No Way Home and Thor Love and Thunder. Actually, is there anyone here that hasn't and doesn't want to know? <laughs> that would be awkward. Haven't seen it. Don't care. Don't worry. Right, cool. I haven't had a chance. Already had it spoiled. Oh, yeah. Saw, I got it spoiled. I got it saw spoiled. Saw them both. Got very <laughs> excited. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't know about Danny. Eh, sorry, Crystal. But I knew about Brett. And I'd so basically just turned around to my husband as soon as it came on and went, he's here. He's there. He's every fucking way. He's like it. Now, I should explain why. In the MCU and Spider-Man No Way Home and the post credit scene, we have Venom drinking at a bar. And it was kind of to explain why he didn't turn up in this sort of like massive calling of all the different um, people. And the barman was Crystal, who, who didn't get a tip. So that was fun. And then, big announcement, big spoiler, Brett Goldstein's Hercules for Thor 5. So exciting. Like, oh, yeah, just he think, is. So good. I'm excited. Like, I know he's done other stuff, but Ted Lasso is really like the big thing that I've seen him acting in. And so to see him like portraying a character who will be very different in nature. But I'm also interested to see what Taika will do with with Brett's sort of grumpy comedy type thing. You know, like I'm really I can't wait for it. Like hurry up and come out already. But uh, yeah, so that totally like changes the landscape of the MCU, Ted, Ted Lasso. I think another really important thing to me anyway is like the creators and the things that have come out because of Ted Lasso, like fanfic, fan art, Etsy stores full of like goodies, podcasts, articles, like just everything that people have created because like, Ted Lasso's made them happy or inspired them. Like, I think that's fantastic. The, the actual chaos theory on that must be... Like the butterfly effect on that in particular thing is, is really cool to me that it makes people want to create things. The Spotify playlist has just made my day every day since Ted Lasso came out. Like it, all that music that's been taken and put into one thing, it's like the, the writers made us a mixtape, you know, and we get to listen to all the, the favourite songs and the things that have inspired them, especially with what Marita said about Opus 26, which was written to say, when you read the script for Option, please um, play this song alongside it. So it's clear how important music was, but it's really made... I, I kind of hadn't listened to music properly in a long time. I don't know why, really, but I just hadn't. And this got me back into it. And then I found myself looking at more TV playlists, like The Stranger Things or The Boys. So it, it really changed that for me. And we all know a mixtape is a sign of love. It is a sign of love. Yeah. I mean, that that's that's a, a double message for all my supernatural fans out there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cam Cole, the um new age traveling busker, who I assume was glad of the extra attention for album sales, for, you know, for the second album. I mean, he is, seems to be more of a an artist than somebody who's seeking fame, but, like, it, it was really nice to see him get some recognition for his talent. So that's, like, really cool. One of the biggest things that I don't think would have happened, it would have happened at some point, but I don't think it would have happened as quickly, is panic attacks not being used as a punchline in a sitcom, but actually explored. And I think that certainly for me made me feel really comfortable about my, like my panic attack or like watching it 
not be used as a way to show that a character's neurotic or they're the weird one or whatever. It was genuinely explored. And I, I think if that's how that made me feel, there must be thousands of people that feel more seen because of that, which is a massive impact. I also believe that there's more men feeling comfortable talking about anxiety, suicide and other mental health topics, um, which is only ever a good thing. What do you think about the mental health impact? I think it was huge. I think it was huge. I think, you know, we all suffer from it. And it's something that is, you know, I mean, everyone, right? There's a like mental health, there's a range of it, right? Like like you said last episode, right? The spectrum is being, yeah. Right. Like physical illness and the mental illness also has a spectrum. And I think that we, you know, we we demonize it a lot. And like there's a lot of like even just seeing a therapist, like people think you don't see a therapist unless, unless you're crazy. Mm-hmm. air quotes mm-hmm. you know and, and it's like it's ridiculous and yeah. so I'm glad that we're like normalizing all that and in the show like we only see male characters sit with Dr. Sharon mm-hmm. right and and so this is like therapy in for men therapy in the sports world therapy mm-hmm. like you said without there having to be a specific thing like you know some of them just were homesick yeah. And and just wanted to be able to like process some of mm-hmm. that and really normalizing that. Yeah, yeah. I I do I do like the way that the show has dealt with it. Even with uh Dr. Fieldstone, you know, I know there is the trope of the like black woman yeah. therapist, but I I did some reading on that for I don't remember what, but I was digging into it a little bit. And the idea with her character is that she's not just going to like make you feel better she's not the like yes. oh it's okay I'm gonna like yes save you or whatever it's like she's she's like, gonna make you work yeah Ted I'm charging you and for mm-hmm. a house call because that's what this is like this mm-hmm. is a professional relationship and so while she is helpful as a therapist she's not really she's not- tokenized in the same way that we've seen in other shows mm-hmm. uh, and I think that should have an impact as well, because the more people that see that the more diversity you have in the writer's room, the better the stories, then the more diversity we'll get. And funnily enough, Dr. Sh- one of Dr. Sharon's lines is one of my favourite quotes, which we're going to cover. We're going to cover some quotes that we can't live without now that we've got Ted Lasso as well. So that's good. So what I'm going to do now is just run quickly through some fan stories that I asked. I asked on Twitter anybody that would um, give me a story about how Ted Lasso changed their life or things that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Ted Lasso. So I'm just going to run through some of those just now. And we have Thea, who says she never would have co-founded the LassoCon conference and bonded with all of us or wandered around Richmond for three days and joined the sites. She would feel less happiness and support and friendship in her life. And I'd never have got to meet her in South Queensferry and look like I was melting while the two Americans and Jane as well looked okay <laughs> in my own country, embarrassing. But yeah, no, that was a lovely day. Alice says that Ted Lasso and the friends they've made because of Ted Lasso got them through depression and a divorce and, and they're eternally grateful for it. And that's really nice to hear, right? Like a tough time getting you through a tough... I think Andrea, you'd said a similar thing, didn't you? That really, Ted Lasso, you felt like dug you out a bit of a despair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you could, you know, we can all relate to that, I think. Jane says Ted Lasso has been a great escape from the state of her country in politics, um, which is America, right? She says it not only makes her laugh, but also think and learn what's important in our life. And I relate to that. That's that's a really good point. And the clubhouse groups are like a weighted blanket. And for anybody who listens who doesn't know, we have a clubhouse group every Sunday night to have a chat about 
rewatches or just Ted Lasso in general. And we've all developed quite a lot of friends. And I believe those are open. So if you're listening and you're curious about it, you can check it out. It's the Clubhouse is an app. If you think about like the the Twitter live chat things yeah. that happen, it's very similar in that. It's, it's like a conference call. It's not video based. They're Sundays at for eastern time in the u.s i you know obviously wherever you are that time zone will change i think if as long as you search for something in clubhouse that has ted lasso's name in it around that time you should be able to find it i think yeah. i think they're i think they're titled as this is awesome and to be clear the we is not the book club it's a group of ted lasso fans so you're not obligated to talk about books uh if you come to yes. the clubhouse um sometimes we just shit talk <laughs> we just talk about absolute crap but it's brilliant oh it's it's 9 p.m in the uk and I'm usually by that time, I'm like, oh, God, I'm so tired. You know, I could just go to my bed. And every time that I have Clubhouse after, I feel so much better. Like, it's so I'm, even if I'm tired, I make myself go. And Mimi A says, this is a really good one. Ted Lasso cured her sciatica. Being stuck at home for two years because of the pandemic equals arse and leg agony. Um, but the show made her a whole new bunch of friends and she got out the house and met them. And now the pain is gone. And I love it. Love it. Brilliant. Mental because health and physical health. Well, it's no joke sciatica so yeah sympathy there I'm glad it's gone Kelly met her two best friends in the world because of her love in Jamie and Roy which I absolutely adore and um, Hannah wouldn't have decided to get her master's in social work so that's a big life change Liz now this is an interesting one it said that if not for Ted Lasso she would have never have had a wonderful time with an old friend when they went to see Brett Goldstein live stayed for the comedian after called Orny Adams and accidentally positively heckled the performer and nearly got kicked out of the Hollywood Improv. <laughs> That's so funny. That was so funny. It was a but she did make clear it was a positive heckle. You know they were just cheering and stuff. But like it's you know an improv. It's they want all the talent. Want the attention on them. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, for me, I wouldn't have started my Twitter account. I wouldn't have met all the wonderful people that I have met. I would not have seen Brett's podcast live in London. I would never have seen Cola in that salmon suit he wore at one of the award shows because who? Um, that would have been a travesty. That would have been the worst one. And there's something else that I wouldn't be doing if it wasn't for Ted Lasso, but I've clean forgot what it is right now. I can't. I can't think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No idea, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Must be the lowest on the list or something. I can't, I can't remember. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I certainly wouldn't be here with you three wonderful women. And I certainly wouldn't have learned so much. I don't know if you saw my tweet today about um, how I used to want Rupert to get decked by Ted. And now I kind of just want to see him sitting in a room reflecting on what an arsehole he's been and why he's got nobody while Ted thrives. And I genuinely think that that emotional growth is from us talking you know and learning from other people and listening to other people because I can be quite a cynical bitch so (laughs) it's nice to have some other input if you're sitting at home just now and you think of something that you want to submit go to our twitter at beards book club and tell us your story yeah we want to hear it I really want to hear it I love these they make me happy should we that's my story about why Ted Lasso's changed my life what what do you ladies think I mean, I think aside from the obvious of like Clubhouse and uh, and the podcast in particular, little things like um, I now listen to Brett's podcast, 
which I wouldn't have known him. I wouldn't have known his work to have found it. And it's one of the few podcasts that my husband and I will listen to together. Like I put it on when we do dishes at night and just kind of listen. In the past, I've done that with other podcasts. And then like when we're done, I just, you know, kind of end it. But now we'll come back out to the living room and finish listening to the episode or whatnot. I wouldn't have met Andrea in person. (laughs) And hopefully someday I will meet the other two of you in person. But it was so good to, I felt it vicariously. I was so happy for you both when I saw that picture. I was like, oh, this is just the best. Like, God help you if I actually meet you. I'll probably probably just melt into a crying puddle. We'll recreate that photo. Andrea, you want to talk about the photo? (laughs) Yes, I do. So I, yeah, I I would have gone to that convention because I was going to go to the Supernatural convention, but because Bex went, she had a ticket to get a photo op with two of the actors and asked me if I wanted to join in. And I was like, sure. So I, yeah, I would not have, I would not have done the photo op if, if Bex hadn't. Yeah. Hugged Misha Collins Misha Collins, and been in the same photo, like touched on. Touched Jensen. Yeah. Jensen Ackles. (laughs) <laughs> I love that and that is such an epic picture because when I first seen it I, I, I didn't really pay attention to Misha or Jensen Ackles the actors that are in it I just forgot that I was like who are these fuckers some you know, two like, dudes yeah who are these two dudes look at my guys some random guys <laughs> yeah exactly. I genuinely don't know who they are so yeah I was yeah. just like oh that's so sweet there's some guys well, there too <laughs> Jensen now um I mean I think he'll always be known for Supernatural the most but his most recent role is as soldier boy in the boys so that's 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 gonna take him above and beyond yeah Um, so so the picture and then um i think i yeah i had also said like yeah i was definitely like i started watching ted lasso right before like here in america we had the the january 6th kind of attempted takeover of the u.s government the only thing that got me through it like i was yeah i had just started ted lasso and i was just like oh my god like i just wanted to like just dive into ted lasso land and not <laughs> not think just about anything, yeah. that was a mess and well and also right also when i started right i said december 2020 so it was like you know we were coming into our first year mark of the pandemic that was supposed to only you know supposed to only be two weeks we're all gonna stay yeah. home for two weeks guys yeah. Yeah. We can get out of lockdown early. It'll be fine. We won't need two more. Because <laughs> we came out the first one early. <laughs> yeah, and then just like I said, like the positive, like, I, you know, I think I was always tried to be more of a glasses half full person, but I definitely think of Tedisms in my life just normally, like, I feel myself getting irritated or something. I'm like, be curious. Don't just judge people. Don't just get angry. Don't be, you know, like, keep moving forward. Be a goldfish. Like, I think of these things. Like, they are you know, they resonate with me in my daily life. Like I think Ted Lasso's made me a better person. Certainly has me with the curious, not judgmental thing. It's just something that's there all the time in my head. And I'm not, you know, sometimes you're going to have your bad days and you're going to be a snippy little bitch, but like it's, it's certainly improved. (laughs) Marita, what about you? Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, the real Ted Lasso is the friends we made along the way, right? <laughs> I love it. I was going to um, say that during Andrea's segment. Like, it just kept popping into my head. <laughs> well, I don't I don't want to get too morose, but I've lost a couple of close family members during the pandemic. And for the longest time, I just had sort of 
I, I've always been a pretty voracious reader and I just was not able to read. Like I just too much of my cognitive load was taken up by grief and the aftermath of, of death. And so this book club specifically, you know, I just started treating the books like assignments and reading for pleasure still wasn't possible, but I could get through the homework because I spent <laughs> my life in school. Um, so the book club has been a great opportunity to meet you all and, and make these friendships, but also just give me the ability to sort of get back into a frame of mind where I could read again, which is a huge gift. Um, that's really fucking brilliant, to be honest. Like that's, it's, I think we've all just come together at a really good time for all of us. Like it's just worked great and it wouldn't have happened if not for Ted Lasso, which is weird because I was, a, I'm a Supernatural fan as well. Not as like much as Bex, like I've watched them all like a hundred times each episode, but I can't remember anything. But yeah, I'm surprised, like I've never bumped into you before with that. So it's, it's really cool. I really love it. I, I just want to add, like, I think you just made a good point though, because like, same with me, like, uh, I've I have other obsessions than Ted Lasso. I love you know Star Trek, Star Wars, and I have like pretty much stayed out of those fandoms because they're fucking toxic. crazy. They can get toxic. Well, they can... toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the supernatural bad. fandom ain't much better. Like we we're no, they're, they're not. Really they're, they're way worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're terrible. Fandom. Um, I, Outlander that I'm obsessed with you think it's this lovely romance novel in Scottish Highlands no 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 some of those women are freaking rabid they are rabid they are not friendly it is not like I'm sorry Outlander fans but the Outlander community there's wonderful people in it but there is oh, a very dark that. side to that community mm-hmm. and so like I like tentatively I'm like oh Ted Lasso and like you know I would argue that there's, there is a little bit of toxicity now that wasn't there before, but it's still so much better than any of these other ones. Like I, I, you know, I still to this day do not engage with any other fandom the way I do to that. So. And I think that's what we have to all come to terms with is it doesn't matter where you are, there's going to be arseholes and it's just having to get used to dealing with the arseholes yeah. that are the thing, because I think you can hurt yourself a lot more than you end up hurting them because they don't care. <laughs> No, you know, so not. you just got to rise above it. Got to rise, and not just in fandom, and every, everywhere. And I think I'm really related to what you said about making you a better person because it certainly makes me think twice about my actions. And I'm not like I was a complete arsehole before, right. but you know, yeah, maybe, maybe a bit. <laughs> I'd get pissed though. I'd get pissed about people. I would let things get to me. That I'm an irritable them. person. By yeah. nature. <laughs> it's, just, it's just gave me a chance to kind of counteract. And lastly, I just want to finish up on some of the quotes that we wouldn't have got. And these are just my favourites. You'll have your own, but maybe, you know, if you're listening, have a wee think of the lines that you, you couldn't live without. Now, mine's are, because however good you are at jo- your job, I'm twice as good at mine. By Dr. Sharon Fieldstone. Yeah. And being super mature, you big dumb hairy baby twat, which is just the most poet, the best poetry. I love how that rolls off your tongue because I wouldn't like say cadence. it that well. <laughs> it's just, it's just poetry. It's like you big, you know. I love it. It's one of my favorite lines. It's in there. It's never going anywhere in my head. Doing the right thing is never the wrong thing. That one stays in my head a lot as well. And mutual, mutual joy. Mucho, mucho joy. Yep, they all they just give me life. All of those quotes. I like Caesar, you later. Caesar your meter's good. That's a good yeah. one. And of course, be a goldfish. Be a goldfish. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's another Sharon one I like. Well, she just says she's fucking excellent at something. And I was like, yes. Yeah. And, and she shares uh, a line which 
for people who aren't familiar was uh it's actually attributed to Gloria Steinem um which is the truth will set you free but first it'll piss you off which has never been more true in in its life really right Mm -hmm. what's the tour um I can't be your what was it the tormentor one yeah 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 great lines yeah and that's similar to Higgins with the whole like mm-hmm. playing into his vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just love the Higgins face when when he sees how happy he's made Ted with a pun. I need more than that. Also, you tore your butt, son. There's nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That is a good one. Uh and we could do another three hour podcast on like the, the quotes that give us life and dead laugh. Yeah. So but I think you're right. There's something to be said about those lines that stick with us that we wouldn't have had if this if this show didn't exist the way it mm-hmm. does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of them mean something. Some of them are just really funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thanks for um, sharing with me. I know I do ask you every week to share a lot of personal information on the podcast. So I do appreciate that you, you do that. It seems like we all enjoyed the movie. I certainly did. I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did, to be honest, with it being an older movie and the experience we've had of older texts and stuff. But no, I really enjoyed it. I like the idea of thinking what would the world be like if something hadn't have happened or if somebody wasn't born. And and that's why I'm genuinely interested to hear what people have to say about what's changed in their lives because of Ted Lasso in a similar way to what changed in um, Bedford Falls if George wasn't born. So send us your tweets or email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. We're about to drop a small spoiler for the season three filming of Ted Lasso. If you'd like to avoid this, skip ahead to the 1.32 mark. Does anybody else have any final thoughts? Well, I have something a little bit spoilery from the season three shooting. We can put a warning in for that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. so. In the Carol of the Bells episode, we see um, Rebecca very much coded as Ted's angel, right? She rescues him from this drunken, morose, repeated viewing of It's a Wonderful Life. And so the the spoilery shots that have come out of the filming they did in Amsterdam have showed Rebecca falling off of a bridge, which is, of course, could be very much a callback to It's a Wonderful Life. So I'm just curious to see if they actually go there with that and somehow code Ted as Rebecca's angel in getting her out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will definitely swing back to this once we've seen the episode. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm interested too. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. I was, so I was just excited to do, you know, to take one of my favorite films and and connect it to the show. Like, it's like, yeah, this this is good. This yeah. is good. Yeah. And I do really, I honestly really enjoy everybody's parts. Like it's just so much fun to, to meet me all. Andrea, you know what we are reading next. I hope because I don't. Yes. We're reading Bridget Jones' Dairy. I mean, Diary. <laughs> Brilliant. The Milk Sisters would be proud. Yeah, it's funny because we had that on the list and I was like, when did that show up? I don't remember this book being a part Andrea, of it at all. Andrea Laser Eyes. Yes. <laughs> the milk well, at sisters some point, at some point we're gonna have to do a whole rom-com movie marathon yeah of like all the ones in that one episode where they were referencing all the different rom-coms mm-hmm. as long as we don't have to do love oh, actually. actually oh it's oh, just so yeah. uncomfortable and I I was 17 only, she only was 17 Oh. Yeah, only once we want to only once yeah. we want no, okay actually. but next like we have to do princess bride Right, yeah, because he that. has the reference. Like, 
Oh, I know. You're okay. I'm just, what yeah, the but, actual I'm book, changing Michaela. the book I'm for sorry. next week. Fake Gen Xer, fake Gen Xer. <laughs> just kidding. We just we just altered <laughs> no, I'm the really schedule. bad for that though. I'm really bad for that. Being like, I must watch this movie and then just never get around to it. So that's is why I like it here. Yeah. All right. So next up is actually British Jones' Diary, <laughs> um, and that's by Helen Fielding. Yes. Yes. Remember, you can engage with that text any way you want. If you want to read the print copy, go for it. If you want to listen to an audiobook, if you want to scroll some spark notes or read some articles and just sort of get an idea for what was happening there, you know, however you want to engage with the text, that's that's right by us. A-OK here. A-OK. No judgment. <laughs> Considering yeah. I gave up halfway through one of the books that, on, that we read, so it's fine. <laughs> was a terrible book so it, I don't blame it you. it's the <laughs> only I just started looking at my stats on story what is it story graph story graph yeah and it's like you've rated all these books like three stars and above and then there's one one star rating on <laughs> I don't know what that is <laughs> hmm, hmm fuck Scott Fitzgerald <laughs> I've, I've and anyway, for those books are like I read this for Ted Lasso, but this book is garbage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. As usual, it's been wonderful to spend time with you, and I'm looking forward to reading Bridget Jones's Diary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Next time. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send an email to us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review.